It just means that they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we adapt? How do we evolve? And I think anything that's not constantly evolving and adapting is dead. And so I think this is actually a great sign for the health and vitality of the natural liquid regime as it applies to space. Hey, Space Watchers. This is Space Cafe Radio, your channel about trends, great people and awesome conferences. A few days after the third session of the open-ending working group on reducing space threats in Geneva, I sat down with two representatives from the civil society, with Dr. Jessica West, senior researcher at Project PlugShares in Waterloo, Canada, and the host of our Space Cafe Canada series, and with Victoria Sampson, director of the Washington office at the Secure World Foundation. We spoke about the status of the working group, the challenges, and the potential way forward. I'm Thorsten, publisher of Spacewatch.Global. Enjoy this conversation. Thank you, Victoria, and thank you, Jessica, for giving me your time for that interview today. Jessica, let me start with you. Can you give us and our audience an overview of the open-ending working group and what its goals are, please? Absolutely. The working group is tasked itself by the United Nations General Assembly to discuss the means of reducing security threats in outer space through norms, principles, and rules of responsible behavior. That's a mouthful, so I'll break it down quickly. In essence, it's responding to the new context in which we find ourselves in outer space, where there is rapidly changing and expanding scope of technical capabilities and new activities, some of which can be potentially harmful as well as very valuable to the international community, as well as rising geopolitical tensions which we have on Earth as well. And so how do we manage this new context in a way that we maintain peaceful uses of outer space and safety, security, and sustainability for everyone and mitigate some of the tensions that might be ramping up? Overall, the objective is to identify these perceptions of current and future threats and also ways to mitigate them through behaviors and mechanisms that can reduce the risk of miscommunication, misperception, misinterpretation, all of the misses that might accidentally escalate into confrontation or possible conflict, as well as behaviors and activities that might have a similar effect, such as interfering with critical military or civilian infrastructure. We want to maintain peace in outer space, and we want to do this by adopting behaviors and rules that can do that. I think it's really important, though, to note what the open-ended working group is not intended to do. This includes making new laws. A key goal of the conversation is to work with the existing legal framework and strengthen its implementation, while possibly making recommendations on areas for additional legal measures. The discussion is also not intended in any way to place restrictions on technical capabilities or access to technologies or otherwise impinge on the rights of all states to use outer space for peaceful purposes. The law you are referring to is the Outer Space Treaty or are there other laws that are put into foundation? Yeah, we actually have a lot of law that applies to outer space, including the Outer Space Treaty. That is the cornerstone. And I would say there is consensus among all states that the Outer Space Treaty is really at the heart of the legal regime. It's valuable and valued and remains highly relevant to maintaining peace in outer space. But it also recognizes other areas of international law, including international law. At the heart of the discussion was also discussion of the United Nations Charter, which states recognize applies to outer space 
international customary law that has evolved through the last several centuries of state practice applies to outer space. Most states also agree that international law includes humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict. That is a little bit less unanimous. There's some controversy among some states, but generally there's a lot of law there. How can we apply it better? How can we strengthen it? And how can we give it detail and give it more meaning in the way that we practice our activities in outer space? I think Jessica laid it out beautifully. A lot of the questions come down to how do these laws apply and how do these new uses of space and new actors in space, how do you figure out where it goes and where they fit into this discussion? For example, international humanitarian law, with the exception of two countries, pretty much all the states there said, yes, of course it applies to space. But the question is, of course, okay, how does it apply to space? And that's the way I think these sort of discussions are incredibly useful is because you get to have viewpoints exchanged about how you do this and how you move ahead. And the fact that the international community does not agree on this, it's not a failure of these laws. It's not a failure of the system. It just means that they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we adapt? How do we evolve? And I think anything that's not constantly evolving and adapting is dead. And so I think this is actually a great sign for the health and vitality of the international legal regime as it applies to space. Absolutely. And the conversation is the point, as Victoria say. A piece of paper is not the point. The meetings are not the point. It's the dialogue and the exchange and the ability to sort out the how. Due regard is also a common one that comes up. You know, it's a core principle of the Outer Space Treaty. It's valued by everybody. What does it mean when we're conducting rendezvous and proximity operations? Or what does it mean if we're doing military exercises related to outer space? And we have to have the conversation so that everyone has the same understanding of what the law looks like in practice and what their obligations are to one another. Thank you very much for laying this ground for our further conversation that we will have here. Victoria, I read with large interest over the weekend this article written by Teresa Hitchens of Breaking Defense. And she posted it under the headline, UN meetings, space cooperation picks up momentum, but Moscow and Beijing play spoilers. We will put the link with permission into the show notes here. She wrote about the Russian delegation exorbitantly obstructive during the session to the point of effectively strangling substantive discussion on the opening day with aggressive nitpicking about procedural matters. How did the session feel? What was the general atmosphere in the room? Torsten, if I have to hear a point of order one more time, I think I might lose it because that came up repeatedly on the first day. I mean, it, this is kind of a, it goes into a wonky discussion, but really what it comes down to is that the International Community of the Red Cross, the ICRC, wanted to give a statement because that was one of the first topics was about how the international legal regime fits into this discussion. And they have thought a lot about this. And of course, they argue that international humanitarian law applies to space. Shockingly, Russia does not agree with that. And Russia, I would argue, is not a fan of humanitarian law in most circumstances, and particularly is, I think, working toward making sure that the ICRC is not considered, you know, kind of um, delegitimizing its role at the United Nations. And so there was this whole discussion about, okay, the open-ended working group is intended for nation states to work together under consensus and to give their statements. And it was also supposed to allow civil society to participate. And it became a very long discussion about where did the ICRC fit? Should they be allowed to be part of the, quote, formal discussions? Or should there be, quote, informal discussions, which is basically the open-ended working group chair 
waving his hand saying, we are now in informal discussions and then moving on. The problem with that is once you start that, that's a precedent perhaps. And unfortunately, this is the third meeting of the Open-Ended Working Group. The first session, the ICRC made its statement, no problem. The second session, we ran into this issue again. The chair said, okay, this one time I'm going to allow them to do a statement under informal presentations, but we're not setting a precedent. And so Russia was running with that and saying, no, they should not be allowed to participate. They're not a state. They should only do informal, which sounds like, okay, neither agree or disagree, but, you know, have the discussion move on. It was five hours of back and forth on mostly this issue. There was a little bit in the morning session about Russia being upset that it felt that its chosen draft treaty of choice, the PPWT, the Regional Placement of Weapons in Outer Space, that it was not fully recognized by the agenda. And so there's a whole lot of discussion about whether the agenda was notional or if we could just move around or just toss it out entirely. The chair had set out an indicative agenda, just basically splitting it up into nine topics and it being 11 by the end, just to give some format. But he was very clear saying, if you guys want to talk about other things, you can. This is your open and working group. But anyways, the thing that really surprised me is that, to be honest, I expected Russia to play a spoiler role back in May. And they did not. I mean, there was a little bit of this discussion then, but not so much. That was the first meeting. The second meeting was in September. And again, we didn't really have this issue. So to come out swinging at this third session, that was really a surprise. It was a five-day meeting, six hours a day. The first day, literally the first five hours were taken up by mostly Russia's point of orders. Eventually, they worked it out. ICRC was able to finally give its remarks. Russia was not happy, sent a note for Val complaining about how there were, the chair was ignoring consensus on this matter, but we're able to move on. So I think there's a, a little bit of befuddlement in the room about whether the discussions were ever actually going to happen. And I, I know that I was concerned but that we would never hear any substantive discussion. But once we got over that first roughly day of putting on the brakes, then it worked out. I think Victoria mentioned consensus, and that's another word that I got very tired of hearing alongside points of order. But it really speaks to the challenge of these types of discussions that where a substantive outcome depends on consensus. It doesn't mean that progress doesn't happen without consensus, but if you want to have a report that is publicly released, it does. But, you know, consensus on what? Usually it is the substance of the report, whereas there's a push to apply consensus to procedural issues, which really was the challenge of day one. And I just think it's important to recognize the incredible diplomatic skill of Helmut Lagos, who has been chairing that meeting. He did a fantastic job of, I think, being empathetic and listening, but also maintaining order and ensuring that we did have a substantive discussion that was very rich, that recognized different perspectives and viewpoints and interests, and didn't allow procedural disagreements to get in the way. And I cannot imagine most other people being able to navigate the situation with such grace and aplomb. So just shout out to him. Just want to second that as well. He did a fantastic job. And he was, and as Jessica said, an extremely challenging position, which he handled with such grace. I watched the first two hours of the meeting on the first days, and I was biting my nails and said, hey, where will that go? So I am really have a lot of empathy with the two of you being there and seeing that live. As both of you also representing your NGOs, your non-for-profit organizations. What is the role of an NGO in this working group? Is it as an observer? Can you make statements? How does it work? The UN General Assembly resolution that created the Open and Working Group said specifically that civil society 
was intended to be able to participate. They wanted to make it as inclusive as possible. And that was part of the reason of making it an open-ended working group as opposed to the other UN thing, a group of governmental experts, which is much smaller and much more intimate conversation. But there was a whole discussion, again, not to get too wonky, but about the observers, whether they were ECOSOC-recognized observers, which ECOSOC is in front of the United Nations, or if they were just civil society, interested civil society participating. Civil society was allowed to submit written statements. Their written statements will not make it into the final report, but they would be allowed, they're allowed to do that. And I know that my organization submitted a written statement as well at the end that once all the topics were completed, and as I said, there were 11 topics, so it was a thorough discussion. But at the end, there was time for civil society to give statements. And so my organization gave a statement, and Jessica gave a statement, and one other organization, Dan Otrogi, representing ISO, gave a statement as well. So I think that was a nice compromise between some of the concerns some of the states have about civil society participating and, I mean, taking oxygen away from the states, but also making it an inclusive process. Yeah, and I think it's essential that civil society be able to be there in person and contribute. For my part, I see part of my role as bringing transparency to the discussion. Not everyone can be there in person. I think that openness is also key to legitimacy of the final outcome. When discussions are behind closed doors or not accessible to enough people, there can be questions about the content. And I think just being as open as possible, which is the goal of the meeting, is really essential to having a strong outcome. But also we're key to capacity building. Victoria can speak to this. Secure World came up multiple times with their counterspace report during the discussions. And so having experts in the room who are subject experts I think is really valuable for states that also have fewer diplomatic resources and fewer domestic expertise to bring to every single meeting. So I'm pleased that it's continuing, and I think we have a valuable role to play. Jessica, can you highlight a few of the topics that were discussed in the meetings? Absolutely. So I'm scanning through quickly on my laptop on the agenda, or sorry, it wasn't an agenda, the iterative, iterative work plan which was non-binding and not formal, but it was intended to structure the discussion. And I have to say, yeah, there were 11 topics. And so as you can imagine, with 11 topics, it was a really broad and detailed discussion diving into the nitty gritty areas of space threats and how we can do better at mitigating them. And so the topics covered different areas of threats. So earth to space, space to space, space to earth, We covered specifically topics related to the prevention of placement in weapons at the request of Russia. And we talked a lot about positive things that states can do. Information exchange about policies, better communication and TCBMs. We talked about international humanitarian law a lot and you know how it might apply to outer space, but also just the fact that it does apply to outer space. And... I have to say, it was refreshingly detailed, the discussion. I have an ongoing Twitter feed for each meeting if anyone wants to look it up, but the extent to which the conversation has matured and become so detailed and practical from May of last year to February of this year is astounding. And it speaks to the work that states are putting into this process. And I think the desire to really come away with practical measures that can be applied now that will make outer space activities safer and more stable and more sustainable. I would like to add on, as Jessica said, there were 11 topics in the indicative timetable. 
And a lot of countries came prepared with written statements on those, those topics because they had done their homework and they wanted to make sure that their positions were fully understood. A lot of them recognized each other's working papers that had been submitted just the week before. I will be honest, Secure World, we submitted a statement, but it came on the first day, Monday. And by Monday at lunch, someone came up to me and said, oh, yeah, so I was looking at the website. We read your statement and they had comments on it. I'm like, oh, my God, you read the statement. Like, it's been up for like two hours. But I think that really indicates like how much these states value this discussion and how much they're putting effort into making sure that it is indeed successful. So I found that really encouraging. Jessica, while quoted by Teresa, with most states feel the need for better access to SSA. What was the consensus among nation states about space situational awareness and information exchange? I think that a lot of countries, it was part of the topic nine, and Secure World submitted a statement on that. But basically, Secure World's statement talked about the need for using SSA for verifying space security agreements. But one of the points we make in our statement is that SSA you know, can determine patterns of life and it can identify certain types of threats very well. You know, a direct descent ASAT, that's pretty easy to use SSA to verify whether countries are using them. Close approaches, SSA is good for that as well. But other types of threats, SSA is not as helpful for. So like electronic warfare or directed energy, things like that, cyber. And so just knowing, knowing that SSA is a tool in the toolkit you can use for verifying arms control discussions, but it's not the only one. And just understanding, even if you have the technical ability to get the data, you still have to interpret the data. You have to know what to do about it. And there's a certain level of capacity building there as well. So for a lot of um, countries, there's an interest in SSA data, but it, it, an acknowledgement that they may not have the ability to process that information in a timely manner, and but wanting to have access to information to make the space domain as safe and predictable as possible. And that's part of a larger discussion about information exchange. SSA is one aspect of that. But that was also one of the topics. How do you do information exchanges? Do you, and a lot of countries talk about the need to share information about policies or documents or strategies or budgetary decisions, things of that nature. Um, and I will point out, I'm going to do a quick advertisement right now. The United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research, Sheena Deer and Securable Foundation have been working on a space policy portal through the generous support of the Republic of Korea with the idea of having a one-stop shop, so to speak, of information about countries' policies as a way of helping you know, information exchange. And you, because the more information you have, it's, it, really it serves as a transparency and confidence-building measure to be able to help determine intent when you see actions and behavior that you're trying to figure out what's going on. You can go look at countries' policies and see, okay, does this fit in to what their strategy says about this, or is this something completely out of the blue? That was given a soft launch last week. We are collecting information to populate the database. There has been a request for countries to help submit data, and actually quite a few countries indicated that there would be so many data about their policies because government websites are maybe not the easiest to navigate sometimes when you're trying to figure out you know, documents of that nature. And I believe the goal is to have it formally launched later on this spring. We would like to learn more about it at a given point. But let's focus on this meeting that happened or the Open Ending Working Group. Jessica, what is the progress, the status of the conversation that obviously happened widely? So where are we? Yes, where are we? So we just wrapped up the third of four meetings. And so the next meeting scheduled for the end of August is intended to arrive at a consensus report that would include recommendations pertaining to perceptions of threats and 
possible norms, rules, and principles that can be used to mitigate those, as well as potential areas for future negotiation of legal measures. What does that mean? That means there's a lot of work to do between now and August. The goal is to have some sort of working document ready before the next meeting, because five days is not very much time to try to start that from scratch. And so the discussion will be ongoing from now until then. There will be regular engagement opportunities that the chair will undertake with states from all over the world and states that have different perspectives on this process to try to arrive at a mutual, I guess, a consensus on where to go from here. But I think the good news is that what we're seeing after this third meeting is pretty strong convergence on a lot of themes. I'm not going to use the word consensus at this point. That's, as we learned, a very technical term. But there is certainly convergence and core themes that are coming out, even across all of those 11 topics. I'm going to wholeheartedly endorse the space policy portal because transparency is one of them. States know that we need better awareness of what states are doing in space and a better way of communicating what we are doing in outer space to others. And so there's a whole host of practical initiatives that have been discussed. They range from information exchange on policies, but also using existing tools such as the Hague Code of Conduct to provide better pre-notification of events, to have ways of consulting with one another if there might be an activity that could potentially cause harm or even worry states nearby. Consultations are another one and possibly using or coming up with new ways of doing this so that you're not stuck trying to figure out who to call. Names and points of contact, very basic. I have this in my neighborhood just in case something goes wrong. We don't have that in space. It's surprisingly difficult to know who to contact and how to do it quickly if there is a concerning situation that arises. And it's that convergence that's really important. SSA is certainly a part of that transparency picture, being able to know what's happening. But I think also equality, so all states being able to know what's happening, not just states with more advanced capabilities having a better sense. So I'm actually, I'm quite optimistic. I think a key task will be narrowing it down to the key points that states are really willing to agree on now and move on now. And I see this as the beginning of an ongoing process and conversation that hopefully will continue to mature over the years and become more rich with really practical mechanisms and measures that we can undertake to make sure that space remains peaceful. We can hear you. If I could just build on that, one of the things that came up quite often as well were a lot of countries acknowledging and endorsing the UN General Assembly resolution that basically called for a destructive direct descent anti-satellite missile test uh, moratorium, which of course builds on the statements, the, the commitments not to conduct those type of tests first announced by the United States last year and has since been joined by nine additional countries, total of 10 countries who made this commitment. And of course, the UN General Assembly Resolution, I think 155 countries voted in support of it. So a lot of countries in their statements said, okay, you know, acknowledging it, endorsing it, encouraging it. In my mind, it was really interesting because before, a lot of countries were uncomfortable expressing support unless they had made the commitment or they were about to make the commitment not to conduct. And quite a few countries mentioned it. And these were countries that at the beginning of this process, we're just like, if it's not a legally binding treaty, we don't even want to talk about it. We do not see the value of norms, you know, treaty, treaty, treaty. And so I think that the benefits of having multiple approaches to ensure space is secure, stable, predictable over the long term, I think that understanding is becoming more widely I know, endorsed and accepted. And so I think that bodes well for this process. 
I've always said, I'm not sure, to be honest, if a report will reach, there'll be entire consensus on the entire report. But I think there's, as Jessica said, a capacity building aspect to this. And many countries had previously not really accorded much attention to space security as something that they needed to be personally aware of or paying attention to. Suddenly, this is becoming much more relevant. And they're coming, having lots of opinions about what endorses, what, what entails responsible behavior in space. And I think we're going to see ripple effects of this go on for a while. It's really seeding the ground for these discussions. No one process is going to fix space. It's going to be multiple ways of doing it, but I'm encouraged. I will say as well, in addition to the open-ended working group, there is, once this ends in August and the report, whatever report comes out of it, will be submitted to the UN General Assembly in the fall. Starting in November, there's going to be a new thing called a group of governmental experts, a GGE. This is done based on resolution supported by Russia to go back and start talking about a prevention of an arms race in outer space, a, a GGE Peros. Now, if you're a UN nerd like myself, you might remember that they had a, an identical GGE from 2018 to 2019 that did not reach consensus and just basically was not able to do anything. So the question is, why are they doing it again? That's a whole other discussion point. But I think that indicates that there is more work to be done and that there are multiple processes to go ahead and do this. And we'll see what ends up going on with that. What are the current obstacles or roadblocks you would see in this process, Victoria? When it comes down to it, there's a certain you know way of looking at what do you determine to be a threat. And that's something that I've seen in the years and years I've been watching these discussions at the Conference of Disarmament. Some countries, when they talk about threats of space security and stability, they're saying the biggest threat is actual someone is going to engineer and design and build and launch an honest-to-God weapon and put it in space And that's going to threaten people on the ground. And namely, they're thinking space-based missile defense. And that's largely been Russia and China and their allies. And so other countries have been saying, actually, just because everything in space is pretty dual purpose in terms of whether or not it's going to be a threat, it doesn't, it's not helpful to try and limit technology. It's better to look at behavior and actions. And so let's talk about the behavior that we find threatening. And so I think that's going to be, when it comes down to it, one of the hardest ways to come to reach to consensus on this topic Just essentially, what do you want to do? What are you trying to protect against? I will say as well, previously, there was also a kind of a hard and fast line between countries that insisted it had to be a legally binding treaty to deal with these issues and those that were open to a more normative process. I think that line has been blurred now. And I think many more countries are accepting that you can have both and one does not necessarily lead to the other. You don't have to choose. You know, norms eventually can lead to UN General Assembly resolutions, which can maybe lead to treaties. We don't know. I mean, that's the Outer Space Treaty did not jump out of anyone's head, like a, a, an idea that came out it, it, instantaneously. It was a process that was multiple discussions and resolutions that eventually lent its way to an actual treaty. So I think this is a long-term process. Hopefully we'll see some fruit being yielded soon. And I will say I am encouraged by, again, how many countries have been participating in this, And how many countries, are, you know, I think, are taking to heart some of the responsible behaviors that are listed that are being discussed there and taking it home and hopefully domesticizing it through the national legislation, what they're going to be doing to be responsible actors in space. Jessica, what are the obstacles or roadblocks you see in addition to that? Well, I do think that traditional divide between a legal approach versus a voluntary or a normative approach and behaviors versus weapons capabilities is a key obstacle. It's slowly being overcome. And I think for us who want to see progress, it's important to be able to identify the ways in which the two can strengthen one another. I'm sympathetic 
to actually, I'd say the vast majority of states who don't want to see weapons in space. And so the question is, how do we get there? And I would agree with Victoria that there's a need for many different tools and processes to maintain the peaceful nature of space. And so I think if we can start to identify ways of channeling the fantastic discussion on norms that we're having into the discussion on arms control or more formal arms control, that will be a key one. But overall, I think we really just need to maintain engagement, bring more states in. This is a topic that states who might not even have space programs are starting to realize affects them. Space is essential to absolutely all states and all people. And that message is coming out. And so hitting the road, engaging more states, educating, capacity building, I think those speak to some of the obstacles that are less ideological and more lack of awareness. Space is far away. It's not necessarily been a priority of a lot of states when it comes to foreign policy until recently. And so that awareness, and I know there's plans by Secure World and Unidir and other organizations as well as the chair to do exactly that, to hit the road, to engage, and to try to overcome maybe embedded beliefs. I mean, a lot of states for decades have recycled their statements on outer space because why not? Well, now we're discussing the why not because we're in a new era, we're in a new situation, and we're drawing on new tools. We're trying to expand that toolbox. And I think it's valuable, but it's not always intuitive to states. So yeah, and overcoming the resistors, making sure that we can overcome maybe a perception of two competing processes. And I will say the last GGE on Paros, the prevention of an arms race in outer space, it came very close to consensus and was blocked at the last minute. And I think you also want to overcome a tit-for-tat perception and really make sure that everyone's on the same page, that we want progress on all of these initiatives and we want them to complement one another so that we have a framework and not a piece of paper here and a piece of paper there but something comprehensive. So I don't know, politics is politics, but I think at the end of the day, we have some fabulous content to work with and it's going to take on a life of its own. Right, and if I could just do one more quick thing, I know we're getting close on time, but this conversation is going to be held in multiple forums, and multiple venues, not just the United Nations. I think it's really important to have the commercial sector involved in this conversation. I think it's important to have civil society involved in this conversation and have the space agencies involved in this conversation. And those are all entities that historically have not wanted to have any kind of input to the security aspect of these conversations. Well, hey, it's not our thing. But, you know, everyone who has investment and an interest in space being secure, stable, and predictable, which all these entities do, then they should be involved in the conversation. And so I will say, again, one last quick ad. Secure World Foundation is hosting our summit for space sustainability in June, it'll be in New York this year. We also will have an online component. And we will be discussing a lot of these issues there as well. So if anyone's interested, swfsummit.org. Tickets are available as of today. Did I get that right? <laughs> Is it Very possibly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm excited. Please d- don't forget the media. We are part of the civil society as well. And we can carry the word out. And that's why we do that here. So last question. What is on your plate now for the next months to go? Jessica and Victoria, in terms of the open-ending working group? Or are you letting your staff do that? Okay, I don't have staff. (laughs) I have me. Yeah, I'm going to be, I think, hopefully working a little bit on bringing some perspectives that have aided multilateral discussions in other forums to this forum. I think part of that is recognizing the value 
that a humanitarian perspective, including gender views, have brought to other foras and have really contributed to arms control, quite frankly. And so maybe doing some reflective work on how we can bring that conversation into space. We're already seeing it. There's a lot of talk about critical infrastructure and protecting civilians. And I think environmental protection is really also part of that humanitarian framework. And I think maybe resurrecting some of my previous work on norms and arms control and how they fit together into more bite-sized pieces of information that can identify those really specific ways in which we can make these two processes we've been talking about work together and come a win-win for everybody. Right. And what I'll be focusing on is twofold. One, reaching out to the commercial sector to discuss why space security and stability is important to them, why something like the ASAT test moratorium is important to them and they should have thoughts on, and just what role the United Nations has been doing in all this and these conversations to really contextualize the discussion for them. As well, we'll be doing outreach to having regional dialogues at Secure World, along with UNIDIR, is hosting a discussion for the countries of Africa and Kenya next month with the goal of allowing them to have a discussion and viewpoints about what they identify as responsible behavior and what do they identify as concerns about threats to the space environment and what do they want to see come out of this OEWG process. Again, doing some more capacity building in terms of that. So those are the two-pronged approaches I'll be doing this spring as well as absorbing a lot of the country statements and submissions that were sent in this past week that, unlike some of the delegates there, I did not get a chance to read yet, but I'm looking forward to reading and hopefully being able to help disseminate information about the Open End Working Group here in D.C. Yeah, I should say I'll be working on another recap at some point. It's meaty. I think I have 80 pages of notes from the last week, so it might take me a bit of time, but making the discussion more accessible so that states can orient their own perspectives towards it. And if I can quickly switch hats, I know you can't see me and you can't see that I'm not wearing a hat, but if I were, I would be switching hats. And talking about my work with the Center for International Governance Innovation, we'll probably be continuing our efforts to discuss the space cyber connection, which is a theme that has come up at the Open-Ended Working Group, as well as elsewhere. And we have a new essay series out, and there's a great piece by Victoria and also a piece by me. So you can check that out and hopefully- It's a great piece too. Yeah. Honestly, it's a fantastic series and there's some fun videos, especially of other people. Thank you very much for your time and this interesting recap of the last week in Geneva for the two of you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes, this was wonderful. Thanks for caring about this. It's fantastic. Yes. What an insightful recap. We will put a few of the links of the mentioned events, websites and articles on the show notes. And if you have further questions, reach out to us at radio at spacewatch.global. If you like these or other episodes of Space Cafe Radio, leave us a rating on your preferred podcast platform. It is the currency of today. And if you want to stay on the pulse of the space industry, please visit our website at www.spacewatch.global and subscribe to our newsletters. And of course, don't forget to become a Space Watcher. I'm Torsten Kreening, publisher at spacewatch.global, your independent perspective on space. Thank you.